surviving the end of the semester, which is a good new year. Um, if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, uh, we'll go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter uh, 9, Hebrews 9. We look at Hinduism tonight. So we're turning the corner, making our way home on this particular series. Uh, we'll discuss Buddhism next week, and then we'll have the following week off for Thanksgiving, there's going to be no midweek service, and then when we come back, we've added one other uh, world religion um, to the docket, and that's Roman Catholicism, and I'll kind of unpack why we would talk about them um, in just a moment, because it will, it will make sense as we consider the different major world religions. Uh, we're really considering, and we had already discussed Islam, now Hinduism, then Buddhism, and then Roman Catholicism, which tend to be the five uh, largest uh, world religions outside of Christianity. So with that in mind, Hebrews chapter 9, if you guys would stand for or the reading of God's word together, we'll consider verses 23 through 28 this evening. And actually, it's going to be the text that we use for two of our three points. So, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, this is God's word. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now, to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This will be the key portion that we'll consider together this evening. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This is God's word, and we thank him for giving it to us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you tonight very much aware of the fact that like the opening scripture text that was read tonight as we began our time worshiping you, that you have called us as Christ followers to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. So as we seek to understand different world religions and as we've, we've sought this semester to consider uh, different cults, we, help, we hope and pray that you would help us to be people who earnestly contend for the faith. Not in the sense that we are antagonists or people on the move looking to belittle those who would hold to another worldview than our own, but people who are well aware of Romans chapter 1 and are aware of the fact that humanity in and of itself will go to no end known to man to suppress the truth about who you are. And so as we turn our attention to preach your word tonight, we think of our friends around the city who will do the same. We think of our friends at Boulevard Baptist and Pastor Doug there. We ask that you would be with them tonight as they gather around your word. We ask that you would allow them to reach people for the cause of Christ, that our city may be transformed as a result not only of our own work, but of the work of those 
of like-minded faith and practice. We also think of our friends tonight, Father, in Calvary Baptist and Republic as they are searching for a new pastor. And as a church, we know how blessed we are by our own pastor. And we ask that you would lead a man of God to go there to faithfully preach and teach your word to those near his soul. So be with us now as we turn our attention back to your word. Help us to be charitable, kind, but speaking the truth in love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. And tonight we continue to make our way through different religions and turn our attention to Hinduism. Hinduism is a difficult religion uh, to pin down a particular start date. And there is no known um, kind of leader, founder of the religious group. But what we do know is that Hinduism is known to be the oldest living major religious tradition not connected to the Bible. So if you think Islam is slightly connected to the Bible, you'll see Buddhism is slightly connected as offshoots. Hinduism is completely separate and, and not tied to, there's no different interpretation of the Bible. In fact, the, the Bible, the scriptures that you hold in your hand or Christians all over the globe hold in their hands this evening is of no concern to people who practice Hinduism. They have no care for what the scriptures have to say. They're not, their beef is not with the Bible. Um, and so having no history really to have a leader to track it with, and, and it's kind of all over the place, Hinduism, in effect, to use an often quoted metaphor, turns around to be like trying to nail jello to the wall. But historically, Hinduism originated in the area geographically of India. In fact, Hinduism as a name speaks more to its geographic locale than it does to its actual practice. And so understand that Hinduism, when we think of Hinduism, is identifying itself as primarily a major world religion in the geographic region of India and spread out from there. As far as adherents or people who practice uh, Hinduism, there are roughly 1.1 billion people who claim Hinduism, making it the fourth largest religious group. Uh, Christians make up 2.3 billion people. Islam is 1.8 billion people and rising quickly. And then surprisingly, the rise of people who are unaffiliated or claim no religious background is up to 1.2 billion people in our world. Uh, then followed by the 1.1 billion people. And I said that I was going to allude here to the fact of why we would study uh, Roman Catholicism here in a few weeks, because for whatever reason, in the few research data, uh, probably because when you deal with people who are, and I don't mean this to be uncharitable or unkind, but when you're dealing with secular data-driven companies, a lot of times it's difficult to actually know what differentiates religions one from the other. And so inside of that Christian number, that 2.3 billion Christians, is included 1.2 billion Roman Catholics. So in reality, that 2.3 number is actually not referring to evangelical Christians at all. It's referring to what secular social scientists would identify as a major Christian world religion. And so 1.2 billion Catholics, that's a lot of people, and we need to be aware of that particular group. So that would be why we're also going to look at Roman Catholics. So enough about Catholics, we'll get to them in a few weeks. Let's start out tonight, though, by defining Hinduism. It's difficult to define, but Hinduism is a state of mind rather than 
than an assembly of facts or chronological sequence of events. So we're trying to get to a specific state of mind. And so how do we begin to uh, understand how to fight back, if you will? And I understand fighting, especially in our modern 21st century world that basically doesn't like any conflict that isn't started by somebody with an axe to grind or virtue signaling is understood to be bad. But when we think about fighting back, we're not talking about actually getting into a physical fight. We're talking about actually sparring back with what the Bible has to say about another biblical world religion. We want to know why we believe what we believe, but we also want to be able to go on the offensive. Um, we don't merely want to be able to defend. We want to be able to offend, and the gospel does that because it tells us something about ourselves that we probably don't like to hear. So tonight what I'm going to try and do in the moments that we have together is to consider three main doctrinal concerns and where Hindus line up and where evangelical Christians uh, would oppose this line of thinking. So much like the other cults, we're just going to consider these three things. There's so much more, but I have 30 minutes, and if I go long, you get mad about not getting pizza. So we're going to make sure that we cover these three, and then if you're interested, we can point you in the direction to study more. So let's talk about man first and foremost. First and foremost, what do Hindus believe about mankind? Well, Hinduism teaches that all mankind is divine, but flawed. Interesting. Nothing can be a divinity and be flawed. But again, understand that we're dealing with something different than our own approach to divinity. When we think of divinity, we think perfectly and sinless. Hinduism makes allowances for being divine, but flawed. They refer to man as Atman and are ruled by the laws of karma and samsara. It's actually quite ironic how much of modern Hinduism has bled into American culture. I think uh, talking with Russ Davidson today in the offices, he's preaching on Hinduism in big church. Um, if you saw Elena's meme on our Hangouts page, you'll understand that even better. Uh, but we were talking about this idea of Hinduism and how much it's uh, pervaded, it's pervasive inside of our Western world. And Oz Guinness, a well-known theologian, said, the East continues to stay East while the West becomes more Eastern day by day. Really, realistically, we probably don't understand the level to which Eastern religious practice has infiltrated American culture at large. A perfect example of this would be one of the highest grossing movies of all time is the movie Avatar, which if you were to study Hinduism in depth, you know that avatars play a major, major role inside of Hinduism. It's also evidenced in a lot of different uh, movies and some of the religious practices that take place. Um, we think about uh, Star Wars, The Matrix, and other series. There's subtle hints of Hinduism all throughout it. We tend to be consumers, uh, which means this. Much like the NFL linemen at the buffet table, we gorge ourselves on culture, not thinking anything about what we're actually consuming. So Hindus believe that mankind will be reincarnated in various forms according to the laws of karma and samsara. Bad karma results in reincarnation as lesser life forms or as a low, lower social class, which makes sense given where uh, 
criticism comes from on the issue of social classes. If you know anything about the culture uh, in the country of India, there are several different social classes, and it's very difficult to move up and down inside of those social classes. So Hinduism, as a religion, offers you the opportunity to move uh, up or down the social class structure. That's the hope. Because to do it in your regular human experience is incredibly difficult, almost impossible. Again, understanding the laws of karma, we understand. This has pervaded um, our culture. You hear people talk often of their karma. This is where you chuckle, I laugh, we watch on Facebook, and I send now memes and get text messages about the idea of good vibes. Again, tied primarily to the idea of karma or positive thinking. Again, Hinduism primarily could be defined realistically as an Eastern religion that has mixed itself in with New Age type thinking. And it's prevalent in our culture and society. But what the Bible actually teaches about mankind is not that we are divine. In fact, we're sinners, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But this idea of mankind being able to basically work themselves to a place where they can die and be reincarnated is absolutely opposite of what the scriptures teach. Look again at Hebrews 9, verse 27. As it was appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that much in the same way that Christ dies once for sin, he doesn't have to repeatedly die, we could also point to this particular text and say that it's appointed for human beings to die one time. This becomes problematic when we're considering the claims of Hinduism. The ever-pressing reality of the afterlife and the fact that there are no do-overs or do-betters, because that's basically what Hinduism is teaching, do better, die, come back, do better, die, come back, do better, die, and come back, and eventually you'll reach a point where you can escape from the laws of karma and samsara and go to this high mind set in some sort of reality is absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches about humanity. And Christians should be wise enough, and we haven't been wise enough, to ground ourselves in this reality. Um, One only need to think about the amount of books that have been sold at Christian bookstores talking about people who died, gone to heaven, come back, only later to find out that those stories were actually made up. Um, you, you hear stories about people who die, they, they go to hell, then they come back, and, and now suddenly they want to live for Christ. Friends, we need to be s- skeptical, that would be the kind way of saying it, about stories where people are dying and then being quasi-resurrected. The only person who has ever in the history of the world died and come back from death is the person of Jesus Christ. So this would be my question to you tonight. If we're considering the claims that Hinduism makes, and you might say, David, that's ridiculous. I don't believe that that at all. My question would be, where then are you placing your hope for humanity? 
if you don't believe in Hinduism or you don't believe in another major world religion, if you claim to be what I would call an evangelical Christian, what are you placing your hope on for all of humanity? And then this question comes up next. What are you actually doing to proclaim that hope? Because everybody will agree with me probably in the room that you believe the Bible. You believe what it teaches. You believe that you must put your faith and trust in Christ. And that's the only way for someone to experience eternity with God. And the question that has to come next is, what are you doing to actually proclaim that where you live? So we see what Hindus believe about man. Let's turn our attention to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll consider together what the Bible teaches about sin. But before you do that, just place a bookmark, a pen, whatever, in your Bible there, because we're going to come back to Hebrews 9 to address our final points. So what does Hinduism teach about sin? Danny Aiken once said, and you've heard me quote him often on this point, that the two most important questions that you'll ever answer in your life are, what do you believe about Jesus and what do you believe about the Bible? If I were going to add a third, what is the most important question? That would be, what do you believe about sin? Because in Hinduism, sin is vaguely identified as bad deeds. The laws of karma and samsara are the deciding factor for how you will do in the afterlife, but ultimately there is no true ultimate standard for what is right or wrong. Leaves a lot of interpretation open. There are religious books inside of Hinduism that kind of give a few lists, but even they don't claim to be authoritative on what is right and what is wrong. Well, the book of Romans teaches that all of humanity is sin. We'd say, okay, well, what is sin? Well, Sin means to miss the mark. You go, okay, but what does it mean to miss the mark? What exactly are we missing? And I would argue that the scriptures teach consistently that the mark that you are missing when you sin is God's expectation that you would be holy as he is holy. And Ephesians makes it clear that our sins are the cause of our spiritual death. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, and who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. The book of Ephesians teaches us that humanity, to build on our points, because I'm trying to build an argument here tonight, I'm hoping you're seeing this. Building block one would be, what do we believe about man? Building block two would be, what do we believe about sin? And so sin affects all mankind to the fact that they are spiritually dead and need someone to make them alive. Now, our good deeds, unlike what Hinduism teaches, can never right are wrong. Because ultimately, being good enough cannot clean you up. Um, if you were to look, it's a little bit faded now, 
you, you that know me well in here know that I, I love writing these fountain pens in the back. All my notes, all my sermon notes, all my lecture notes are written in pen um, to help me retain the information and because I just genuinely love working with them. And if you came into my office earlier today, my hands would have been covered in a little bit of Diamine Oxford Blue fountain pen ink because I was reloading one of my pens to, to write the third point of the sermon. So uh, fountain pens are great. They make you pause and actually think and you just type mindlessly away, which is why some of you would probably do better to handwrite your papers before you type them up. If somebody reads papers, I would just encourage you to do that. But anyway, back to the illustration after all of that. One of the great things, though, about getting fountain pen ink, depending on what it is, takes a little bit more or less work to actually get it off of your skin. The problem in the way that most of the world around us views sin is that it's like the fountain pen ink on my hand. If I scrub it hard enough, get enough soap, if it gets even like something very potent that I'd have to mix with bleach and water, I can still, if I work hard enough, get that over time off of my hands. That's how humanity tends to think about sin. The problem with that is it's actually not an accurate description. It's as if that fountain pen ink is underneath of the skin or inside. It doesn't matter how much we scrub on the outside and try and clean it up. It's never enough to actually get down and clean it up because the mark is on the inside. Or to quote Conrad Baboyway, if we thought of sin as like a skin disease that we could treat with an ointment, that's actually not how sin is. The disease is on the inside. Only something more powerful can actually redeem humanity, and that's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, I think we live in a culture and a society, and you guys know this just as well as I do, because you're even more so in the culture at large than I am probably day to day. You know that in our culture, in our world, humanity wants to really downplay this idea that you and I do anything that's wrong. And so one of the things that if you're going to claim the name of Christ, you're going to have to make a definitive judgment about what you believe about sin. If you actually believe that people do commit sin, or if it's just kind of bad stuff, and if you try hard enough, eventually the Lord will make everything right. Well, unfortunately, that's just not consistent with what the Bible teaches. And I'd ask you tonight, because I think this is even still a good question to ask a room full of people who profess Christ. Are you trying to clean yourself up tonight? Christians can fall guilty of this, where they think, well, if I go to church, if I sing the songs, if I listen attentively in the services, if I give a little bit of my money, if I serve a little bit, then God will be happy with me. Friends, understand that what you're doing is exactly what the world argues for, that somehow there's these cosmic scales, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll be okay. Christians get tricked, tempted, or I would say backslide into this idea that they can clean themselves up. And so you might sit here and go, that's ridiculous. Who would ever believe in karma? And my answer to you would be, 
you probably do. You probably do. Because you think somehow, someway now, because you are here tonight, instead of at home studying for your finals or a test or a paper that's coming up, God now owes you on the basis of your work for him. I do these works for God. God does these works for me. And in reality, that's, again, in complete contradiction to what the Bible says. So how is somebody saved? So let's flip back to Hebrews chapter 9. When we consider Hinduism, and I think we have to ask this of every world religion that we come into contact. In fact, I would make the argument that every major religious group, you need to ask this question. What must I do to be saved? Remember, that's the most important question that the Ethiopian eunuch said. What must I do to be saved? Well, in Hinduism, salvation is accomplished. And I just want to just say time out because I know some of you are going to throw some serious hate mail at me. When I go through this, I didn't write this. This isn't me. So when you get upset with me here in a second, take it up with the leaders of Hinduism. Salvation is accomplished by escaping the cycles of samsara by achieving what's called moksha as a state of oneness in your mind. And this is where you're going to get some of you are going to get frustrated with me. Moksha is achieved through yoga practices and creating good karma by doing good deeds and living a virtuous life. That's what they believe. I'm not taking a shot. You want to get a yoga mat and go do yoga because it helps you with your breathing. You need to know what it's based in. And here's what's funny about our culture and society. Our culture and society will be honest about these practices, will speak to them, and then they'll get blasted. One only need to see what happened to John Lundell at James River a little over two years ago when he made the same observation that I just made. The great part about being the college pastor here is instead of there being 8,000 of you who hear me, there's only about 80 of you that hear me. And you probably not have the leverage to get a hate article written in a newsreader about me. But if you do, that's okay because me and my people will come after you too. Bless the Lord. Now, I want to qualify this because I think it's helpful to to be honest with people. I think you need to know where things are rooted in. I think you need to know the backgrounds of things. I also think that if you're not doing chants and not trying to clear your mind and not trying to worship and get to a oneness level, you probably can do stretches just like your kid sister put on a Tinkerbell outfit and went trick-or-treating and wasn't worshiping Satan and sacrificing goats to him. But. I think you need to be careful what you allow yourself to do. I think you need to at least be upfront and honest and and guard yourself against the subtle influences of the world. Furthermore, you've got to make your own decisions based on your own convictions. But your own convictions can't be, well, I like doing this, so I'm going to keep doing it. I like yelling at people, but the Bible is kind of against that. When people mess up my order or treat me rudely or cut me off going down the road, I like to respond in the flesh. But the core teachings of the scriptures would say that's wrong. So I have a biblical conviction that when I get cut off in traffic, let Jess yell at them and not me. Just kidding. 
describing to you God this morning. You're going to have to make convictions about what you do and what you're going to practice and how you're going to operate, but you need to know that this is a legitimate question. Well, let's get back to what Christianity teaches because it's far better than discussing the adverse effects of practicing yoga. Talking about Jesus is always far better than anything that the world has to offer. Salvation is available through Christ. Notice in verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Notice what the author of Hebrews is arguing. Jesus is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, those who are Christ followers. Furthermore, not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is crucified to offer salvation to all of humanity. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is a sinless sacrifice. And by his sacrifice, the opportunity for salvation has come to human beings. It is accomplished, salvation is accomplished, when you go back to a greater understanding of October 31st, not Halloween, but Reformation Day, when we'd say, here's a better way to celebrate the 31st, dress up as your favorite Puritan. Just kidding, you don't have to do that when you're younger than us, most people are. But the Reformers on October 31st launched this recovery in evangelical Christianity that salvation is accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Christ died once for all the sins of the world. This is how salvation has come to the world. You don't have to try and empty your mind and get to this level and reincarnate yourself to force yourself into a higher form of being. What is required for salvation, for eternity spent with God, is accepting by grace the free offer of salvation that is given to us. Christianity is not about getting into a mindset, but about getting to a a sufficient sacrifice. We cannot access heaven through getting to a higher life form. We can only access heaven by getting to an all-sufficient Savior. And that all-sufficient Savior must also be an all-sufficient sacrifice. If we had time, which we don't at this point, we would dive into a deep study of imputation, how God places his righteousness on us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. That is what saves you. Not a mental state, not a trying to work your way up a ladder. So I would conclude our time together this morning and ask you this simple fact. Because you're tempted to believe in something other than Jesus to save you. Or you're tempted to get just enough of Jesus to save you, but not enough for him to actually govern your life. So who 
tonight are you trusting in to save you? Because who you're trusting in to save you must also be sufficient enough to keep you. Now notice that in Hinduism, what keeps you safe? Your own guilt. Friends, if salvation were up to you to get and keep, you would not have it for you would already have lost it. But some of you Christian, not a cultural Christian, not a Christian according to Crossway, but a 